On Saturday, the 26th of May 2018, at approximately 2 a.m., the town of Stella in the northwest was changed forever. In a moment of violence, two young girls lost their lives. Their youth, hopes, dreams and futures smothered and snatched away. In the wake of their murders, one small town and countless families had to come to terms with the unbearable truth. The killer was one of them. Evil did not visit Stella from the unkind outside world that night. Those cruel hands were homegrown. And the murders of Charnel Ho and Marna Engelbrecht would become a spectre that haunts countless lives. This is a Killer Audio Creations production. This podcast may contain graphic information related to the crimes committed by the perpetrators. Sensitive listeners should take this into consideration. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Killer Audio Creations, Showmax, or their partners. Welcome back to Stellar Murders, the official companion podcast to the Showmax original documentary. This is episode two of the companion podcast. If you haven't yet listened to episode one or watched the Showmax original documentary Stellar Murders, then you need to do that first and come back here. In episode one, we met the town of Stella, which really seemed to become almost a character on its own in the murders of Charnel Ho and Mana Engelbrecht. We also then briefly looked at Xander Bailsma and how he came to be a suspect, arrested, and then ultimately convicted of this crime. In this episode, we address the resounding question that is always asked after a crime like this. Why? Why did Xander Bailsma a seemingly normal 19-year-old young man with his entire life ahead of him, take the lives of two young girls in the early hours of the morning in that hostel in Stella. What drove him to commit such a crime? Now, inevitably, when I get into discussing the background of the perpetrator and what may have contributed to the crime, I have at least one person accusing me of excusing their behaviour. So, right up front, let's be clear that nothing can excuse what Zander Bailsma did. But refusing to ask why and shutting down our curiosity about the factors that may have contributed to his behaviour, in my opinion, is worse than excusing it. Because then we learn absolutely nothing. And no, Chanel and Marna did not die so that we can learn something. But Zander killed them. And I think that if we can spare even one other person this fate, then examining the motives and possible contributors to this crime is absolutely worth it. In this episode, you'll hear psychologist Elmarie Clarsons discussing subjects like coercive control, abuse and personality disorders. 
I cannot stress enough that these discussions and her views on these topics are based on her experiences as a mental health professional in general. She has not assessed any of the individuals involved in this case, so none of what she says can or should be considered a diagnosis of any kind. With that clarified, let's get into episode two of the Stella Murders Companion Podcast. Love you to death. All violence is the result of people tricking themselves into believing that their pain derives from other people and that consequently those people deserve to be punished. Marshall Rosenberg Zander Balsma was born two months prematurely. His early birth was a result of his mother Mercia experiencing significant complications during her pregnancy. She was desperate to give birth to her baby as she'd experienced several miscarriages before that. Early on in her pregnancy she contracted German measles and doctors warned her it would likely have badly impacted her baby. They advised she terminate. Mercia refused. Mercia and Monty, Zander's father, married in 1995, and they could not have been happier when they finally had a baby to take home from the hospital rather than another instance of pain and loss after miscarriage. But life would be far from the picture-perfect scene the parents may have envisioned with their baby. Zander was an extremely difficult child and very hyperactive. For Mercia, though, her son was perfect. Very little he could do angered her. Perhaps her desperation for a child blinding her to her child's faults. Monty was a police officer in the South African Police Service for many years, and by the time Zander turned eight, his parents had divorced. Zander struggled to accept his parents' divorce and never gave up hope that they would reunite. He had such difficulty during these years that his parents sent him to a psychologist, but Zander got no value out of those sessions because he refused to speak with the mental health professionals. One trait of Zander's would emerge during this time that seemed to impact his entire life. The young man was extremely hard-headed. Once Zander had decided he was or wasn't going to do something, there was no changing his mind. He seemed to have no interest in the views or concerns of other people. His mother, Mercia, though, described her son as soft-hearted. She said he loved animals and was simply misunderstood because he didn't back down when he felt strongly about something. Zander, she said, was an all-or-nothing kind of person. Although an outsider looking at Zander would likely have seen a wholesome, good-natured, albeit stubborn young man, the people of Stella knew that the boy had a history. In a criminological sense, it's uncommon for someone who commits a crime of this nature to have no record of prior antisocial or criminal behavior, and Zander Balsma would not buck that trend. 
Over the years, when he started to attain Stella High, his parents would have to regularly argue for him not to be expelled. He was found to be involved in vandalism, bullying, an assault at a school sports day, and several other transgressions. Eventually, he was found in possession of alcohol at the hostel, and he was kicked out. He was still allowed to attend the school, but he was no longer allowed to live in the hostel. Zander spent the first few years of his life after his parents' divorce living with his mother, but then he moved in with his father and new stepmother. He struggled significantly to accept his parents' new relationships, and although he was close with his father Monty, his deepest connection seemed to be with his mother, Mersha. In episode one, we heard from journalist Marizga Kutza. Marizga was able to form a connection with Zander's mother, and she would eventually meet Zander in prison. Despite Zander Balsma having been convicted of the crimes he was accused of, he has continued to claim his innocence, and his parents have continued to look for ways, even after his appeals failed, to free their son from prison. The intention for Marizga was to tell Zander's story in the press, and he and his mother were on board with this. But Monty Balsma would eventually put a spoke in the wheel by denying Marizga any further access to his son. Although Zander is an adult, and really could go against his father's wishes if he wanted to, his father is his source of income. Monty Balsma would eventually sell his farm to pay for his son's legal costs, and he continues to fund his needs while he's in prison. Mariska has been able to get a few interesting insights from her conversations with Mersha and her single visit with Zander, though. I asked Mariska what her interaction with him was like and what her first impressions of him were. It's very strange because it was, it was through a window, but the window wasn't clear. So um, there was these holes in the window that you had to peek through. So when I looked through the hole, you know, I looked into Zander's face and I will always remember him looking like a deer caught in the headlights. He looked like an animal, a scared animal that was trapped somewhere and he didn't know where to go. And, you know, another thing that I can say about him, and I've learned a lot about Zander through his mother as well, you know, is that. He, he spoke to me with, um, you know, the uppermost respect. You know, he even called me Tani. <laughs> Mariska puts a lot of stock in Zander's respectful behaviour toward her that day. She said she feels as though he didn't present as a common criminal or someone who came from a background one would expect to see in a crime of this nature. She also says that she's learned a lot about Zander through his mother. And I think that's something else we need to take into account here. Zander's mother is undoubtedly going to present the best possible aspects of her son to the world, and I don't even believe she would do that on purpose. That's simply what a mother would do. Another important point to remember is that Mariska met Zander in jail before he was sentenced. At this point, he was still filled with hope that he would not be found guilty and he would see the outside world again soon. There's no doubt in my mind that the timing of her visit with him would have impacted his behaviour toward her. 
What would be really interesting, I think, is to see how differently Zander might come across now that he's been convicted and his applications to appeal his conviction and sentence have been turned down. Psychologist Grant Strong testified in court about a psychological assessment he'd done on Zander. He said that he found the young man was living with depression and that he'd picked up significant traits of paranoid personality disorder in the young man. Now, it's important to point out that Zander was not diagnosed as having the personality disorder. At 19, he is quite young to receive a definitive diagnosis of this. So when someone is his age, mental health professionals will often say that significant traits exist in the person without definitively making the diagnosis. If we look at some of the traits that are exhibited in people with paranoid personality disorder, many of them do ring true with the behavior we've seen from Zander. Some of these traits include doubting the commitment, loyalty, or trustworthiness of others, believing others are exploiting or deceiving them, being reluctant to confide in others or reveal personal information because they're afraid the information will be used against them, being unforgiving and holding grudges, being hypersensitive and taking criticism poorly, reading hidden messages in the innocent remarks or casual looks of others, perceiving attacks on their character that aren't apparent to others, having persistent suspicions without justified reason that their spouses or romantic partners are being unfaithful, being cold and distant in their relationships with others, and they might become controlling and jealous to avoid being betrayed, not seeing their role in problems or conflicts, believing they're always right, having difficulty relaxing, being hostile, stubborn, and argumentative. This case really is very much about Zander's relationships with people. It was his relationship with Chanel, after all, that was the entire motive for the murders. His belief that Mano was standing in his way that resulted in him killing her. And then his relationship with his mother and father that presented as important points during the trial and after that. Mariska Kutzer has some insight into some of these negative behaviours that Zander seems to present with in his relationships. Zander is also very full of nonsense. Yeah? Mm. So he's a, he's a plus likely, if you, I want to say, into the, the, the basic things of life, in the sense of hunting, farm life. He's got a very teasing personality. So you know, he's always like pulling his mother's soul out, you know, and a little bit stubborn. He's a little bit um, set in his ways. Once or twice where she's told me, you know, stories about him or how he, let's say, reacts to something where I would say, sure, that's a bit hard or I don't want to say the word disrespectful, but I yeah. can bring it back again to the Afrikaner man. You know, yeah. it's that typical, yeah. strong, vibe. But the mm. two of them, they've really, really, really got a, a very strong bond. So two things here. 
I don't think the Afrikaans saying translates too well to English when Mariska says he's pulling his mother's soul out. In Afrikaans, that saying relates to someone teasing. While in English, directly translating it sounds a lot more like an act of emotional abuse. Which, although that's not what Mariska is trying to get across here, is perhaps not entirely unfitting. I think it's really interesting that in that clip, Mariska lists personality traits of Zander, the flag on the list I gave you earlier about paranoid personality disorder. Now, to be fair, what she says about the cultural thing is definitely a consideration too. We touched on this briefly in the first episode, the way that different cultures deal with emotions. And we'll touch on culture again later when we start delving into the intimate partner relationship aspect of this case. But I want to make it very clear here that none of these aspects, not possible personality disorders or just undesirable character traits, not culture or childhood experiences, can in any way minimize what happened here. As much as it might be interesting to delve into these aspects, I really do want to bring us back to the horror of what we're actually talking about. Chanel Ho and Mana Engelbrecht were murdered. Mana received a blow to the back of her head, and then she was throttled with the handle of a handbag until she was no longer breathing. Chanel also experienced blunt force trauma injuries. She was throttled with a wider object across the width of her throat, which we now know was Zander's arm, until she was unconscious. And then a rope was placed around her neck, and she was lowered off the stair railing. There, the oxygen and blood flow to her brain was cut off. She could not breathe, and she died. I could describe this process in far more horrific terms, but I won't. I just wanted for us to remember what we're actually talking about here before we go any further with discussions of dynamics, psychology, and motives. Something that comes up often in this case is Zander's consistent denials of guilt. Even after his conviction, He's continued to refuse to take even his mother into his confidence about what really happened that night. The thing that's really sad to me is Henry's mother. You know, she's there through thick and thin, and I'm very sure that if he spoke the truth and said, yes, I did it, she would still, she would still support it, you know? And that's what I think is one of the biggest, you know, the saddest things here is that you know, I kind of feel like he owes it to his mother. I can't help but wonder if if he wanted to speak the truth so badly, he's had a few opportunities to do so. Mersha Bailsma has never and will never give up on her son. She's told Mariska that even if he one day tells her, you know what, Mom, I did do it, she would still be there for him. Now she moves each time Zander changes prisons. She wants to be in eyesight of where he is. She watches the prison lights come on in the morning and go off at night. When she knows there's no electricity or water, 
then she doesn't use electricity or water at home either. Because she tells Mariska that if her child doesn't have access to these basic amenities, she doesn't feel she should either. And like Mariska, I find this heartbreaking. Because Zander is essentially keeping his mother in this holding pattern through his refusal to admit the truth. Truth seems to be a relative concept to Zander Balsma. There were several instances during the trial proceedings where he was found to be lying, and when confronted, refused to admit it. I asked psychologist Elmarie Clarsons what would cause a person to continue to hold on to this attempt at deceit, even when faced with the proof that almost no one believes him and the lies are serving only to continue to hurt people. There are several reasons why a convicted criminal might continue to deny their guilt, even in the face of overwhelming evidence. So in terms of how far someone might go go to protect a lie, A, some individuals with personality disorders may engage in extreme and harmful behaviours to avoid being exposed. This can include lying to cover up their actions, blaming others, or even engaging in violent or criminal behaviour. That on the one hand. On the other hand, even when people are jailed and found guilty already, there can be other reasons. Some people maintain they're innocent because they genuinely believe that they're innocent. They may even be convinced that the trial was unfair. On the other hand, even when they are guilty, some individuals may continue to deny their involvement because they fear the consequences of admitting guilt. Look, there could be consequences of longer prison, being longer in prison, or there could be consequences in jail where they are. When it comes out that they are really guilty or admitting to the guilt, there might be consequences in terms of other criminals who are sharing the same space with them. It can also be a consequence that um, if I tell other people that I am guilty, I might lose control over my secondary gain. I might lose sympathy. I might lose a sense of control over my situation. Not real control, a sense of control over my situation. And we can even go further. I'm already here, so why actually say that I am guilty? This can make it very difficult for people watching the um, the families of the victims because this kind of behavior can stand in the way of, well, maybe making peace. A lot of families are looking for acknowledgement from the perpetrator in the end of the day. It's a lot of families report that it was a relief when a person was found guilty but then they also need that acknowledgement to kind of try to complete the circle. And now remember, Elmarie is not talking about Zander Balsma here. I asked her in general why someone might continue to deny their own guilt from a psychological motive perspective. But I found her answer truly interesting in Zander's context. While it might seem to us like someone has nothing more to lose, your level of loss just shifts. Zander Belsma may not have his freedom, 
and he has now adjusted to his new way of life. But he still has plenty to lose. On a different level. Perhaps most significantly for him, the way his parents look at him, and the fact that there are still many people out there who've also bought into his claims. If he admits he did it, that all ends. He loses the persona of the wronged young man that he's grown for himself, and he becomes just another criminal. And I don't know about you, but I think that's a whole lot to lose. And here, we swing back to one of the two most important topics I want to discuss here. Two types of abuse that I've seen present in this case, and of course, no one else needs to agree with me, but they're both important topics, I think. Zander Balsma and his mother's relationship was quite an important part of the trial. Not in a direct evidence way, but through letters he'd written to her from his jail cell which became part of the public record because he had written them from his jail cell. And also because of the verbal and physical interactions they had in court. Mersha Balsma is very clearly a devoted mother, and I have incredible empathy for her situation. She's had to make a choice between believing the evidence and believing her son, and she chose the latter. With that being said, though, there seems to be indications that the relationship is less than healthy. A type of abuse that is rarely spoken about is child-on-parent abuse. And I'll admit that this is a bit of a grey area here with Zander. And I don't for a minute think that Zander has physically abused his mother in any way. I'm certainly not saying that. I do think that Mersha's deep love for her son and her absolute devotion to him has been abused. In the letters Zander wrote to his mother from jail, he uses language that is clearly manipulative and aimed at making his mother feel like a bad parent. He all but blames her for his continued incarceration, gives her instructions that mean she would have to break the law, like bribing magistrates and attempts to draw her into a plan where he would have fled while on bail to Botswana, never to be seen again. You heard Mariska talk about some instances that Mersha described to her where Zander said and did things to the woman that Mariska herself found questionable. But then, it's passed off as Zander just being Zander. He's full of nonsense. But... When does full of nonsense become coercive control, targeted manipulation, and blatant emotional abuse? I asked Elmarie Clarsons for her professional view on the general child-to-parent abuse dynamic. Again, not specific to the situation, but what she's seen in her practice or experience. Child-to-parent abuse is something that we do not speak a lot about in our community. And this could take on many different forms, even including physical violence, threats, or verbal abuse, and often also financial exploitation. 
in many cases, um, the child may use emotional manipulation, such as gripping or gaslighting, to control or manipulate their parent. And there are certain signs, and look, we must also put this on a continuum, and not when a child manipulates a bit or tries to get what they want, to not just um, categorize this as this is child-to-parent abuse. We must be very aware to not pathologize normal behavior from children because it's also a way to learn. But certain signs may include verbal abuse, such as name-calling or insult, definitely physical abuse or violence, such as hitting or pushing, threats or intimidation, and threatening to harm the parent or their property, financial exploitation, such as stealing money or belongings, emotional manipulation, and guilt tripping, gaslighting. And the thing is that parents who experience abuse from their child might feel ashamed or embarrassed at detail. But it's very important to remember that they are not to blame and there's help available. It's always about a dynamic between people and to seek professional help. Now, as Elmarie intimates, when we talk about child-to-parent abuse, we're not talking about the very normal dynamics that happen with young children and even teenagers, when they know exactly which buttons to push to get mom or dad to say yes to something. That's not what is meant here. This type of abuse is sustained, ongoing, and detrimental to the abused party. The abuser will also, for the most part, be an older teenager or an adult, someone who really knows better and is not just testing boundaries. Often the parent may not even feel abused. They may see it as something they just have to do as a parent, or they may have some guilt about some aspect of their own parenting where they feel they didn't measure up, and they look past the abuse as a way of making up for that. They convince themselves they deserve it. And the abuser is brilliant at using that guilt to their advantage. Mersha Balsma had a difficult pregnancy. She lost many babies to miscarriage. She must have struggled to adjust to the extremely hyperactive and stubborn young boys under grew into. Then, She and her husband divorced, and although this is something that many, many children quite successfully navigate without much long-lasting trauma, for Zander, with his clearly pre-existing emotional difficulties, this seemed a bridge too far. Mersha would likely have had guilt around the divorce, and the impact it may have had on her son, or the impact that Zander claims it had on him because those may be two very different things. Combined with this sense of guilt is a deep sense of devotion. He is her only child, the son she tried so hard to have. So when that son writes her a letter out of his jail cell, claiming that she and her refusal to listen to his instructions is the reason he is imprisoned, I can't help but think, that that would have an intense emotional impact on her. The question is, how measured is that impact from Zander's end? How purposeful? 
By the same token, Monty Balsma, although likely less emotionally invested than Mersha, has also been pushed to the very brink by this case. He sold his family farm. He's had to make decisions he never thought he would have to. And yet, in the face of overwhelming evidence of his guilt, Zander continues to allow his father to go to the ends of the earth for him. I wondered if there was an element of societal conditioning here that played into Zander's interactions with his mother. Let's face it, in certain cultural groups in South Africa and the rest of the world, gender roles are still very clearly defined as male-dominant and female-submissive. And in many cultures, a male child will also be seen as dominant over their female caregivers. This aspect of the dynamics of this case would play into both this possible child-parent-abuse situation with Sander and Mersha, and it could also contribute to the next type of abuse we'll discuss, which is intimate partner coercive control and violence. I asked Elmarie how growing up in a community where this is the case, in addition to growing up in a household where this is reaffirmed, might impact a young person's ideas about gender roles. Would their own beliefs and character outweigh the societal conditioning and in a young person who'd already had controlling tendencies, would this only serve to support their worldview? I think it's important to look at how gender roles can develop in general, but then specifically in conservative households. Because in conservative households or smaller communities, um, there's often a thing that people hold on to more traditional beliefs about gender roles, which typically could involve expectations for men and women to behave in certain ways. Um, I'm talking more about men can have more control, maybe, and women must serve the men more. And this is a generalization. I cannot say this is everywhere. So we have to look at socialization first, because parents in conservative households may teach their children specific gender roles. That can be through explicit instruction by telling them how to behave, how to be a good man or a good woman, or through modeling behavior that aligns with the traditional gender roles. For example, parents may encourage their daughters to pursue domestic roles, such as cooking and cleaning, while encouraging their sons to pursue more masculine, typically, or traditionally masculine roles, like sports or manual labor or control, some stuff that has more control or money involved. So that on the one hand is socialization, but people can even reinforce these traditional gender roles through um, cultural and religious beliefs. For example, conservative religious beliefs may emphasize gender differences and prescribe certain roles for men and women. So not only model, but prescribe it. And that will have a huge influence on the development of how a boy or a girl may see their role, their specific gender role in a society. Because now we must remember that happens and then we have to look at perception and behavior because um, you learn certain things and then your perception of how it should be becomes your reality. 
and that influences your behavior directly. Perception influences behavior completely because that's your reality. And then it becomes more understandable how even oppositional and stereotypical perception that men can hold of women can foster violence or more masculine behavior on their typically. So if a young man, for instance, already has a personal perception that he is entitled to control, paranoia about the relationship he interacts in, including parental relationships, and then that same young man is also raised in a culture, community, household, or all three that support these beliefs, there's a very good chance that these will lead to a negative leaning of these types of beliefs, often resulting in some sort of abuse. Now, child appearance abuse is one aspect of this case which I think is interesting and important for us to understand. But the most crucial instance of abuse that applies here is the intimate relationship abuse dynamic that existed between Charnel and Zander. I've seen many people saying that they don't understand the motive for these murders. So perhaps let's start with that and be very clear. Charnel Ho was a victim of intimate partner violence. Despite being a teenager, she had been in an abusive relationship, exactly as we may see in a marriage of adults and she had ended that relationship. One of the most dangerous times for an abused person leaving an abusive relationship is when they decide to leave. At that moment, the abuser realizes that they are losing control, and it becomes a matter of, if I can't have you, no one will. Marne Engelbrecht, as Chanel's best friend, had been one of the greatest defenders of her friend's freedom. She saw the toxic dynamic in this relationship and called Zander out on it. She made it very clear to Charnel that she thought it was a bad idea to be with him. Marna essentially became the overrider of the thoughts that all abused parties have where they're sure if they just give the abuser one more chance, everything will be better. And Zander saw that. And that is why Marna was killed as well. Chanel was leaving town that night to visit her mother. She'd made it very clear to Zander that she did not want a reconciliation. In fact, she was dating another young man. If Chanel had left Stella that night, Zander would have lost all control over her. If she'd been in that dormitory on her own, he would likely still have killed her. But because Marna was there too, and he'd had enough hatred towards Marna, she was also killed. I don't believe that Zander would have ever killed only Marna. Chanel was the key here. Everyone else was collateral damage in Zander's mind. So as much as it might be difficult for us to comprehend and the location, ages, and dynamic of the relationship might be slightly different than what we're used to seeing, from a criminological perspective, 
This crime is no different from what we see when a married woman decides to leave her abusive husband and he kills her. Zanda and Charnel had started seeing each other in early 2017. The strapping, dark-haired young man swept the blonde beauty off her feet, and the intensity of young adoration soon took over. I think we can all remember how deeply relationships in our teens impacted us. It almost seems like there's never a way to recapture that deep and intense emotion of first love. And Almarie Clarsons had said something really interesting about why this might be physiologically true. In terms of first love or teenage love or puppy love, it's very important to understand that when we look at the functioning of the brain during this love period of the teenager, it, it looks very similar to addiction in another brain. I'm not saying it's addiction. I'll say it looks similar. So when teenagers fall in love, their brains release a rush of dopamine. That is the neurotransmitter associated with pleasure and reward. So this flood of dopamine can create feelings of euphoria and excitement. And this is similar um, to the feelings of pleasure experienced by people who use drugs or engage in other addictive behaviors. So I think that is important to understand. That on the one hand, and the other hand, when this love is taken away, um, a teenager might feel intense feelings of sadness or longing when separated from a romantic partner. So it's almost like a bit of withdrawal. To understand that, on the one hand, could help to also understand that controlling behavior it might be difficult for the teenager to get away from controlling behavior in a relationship because the brain is already so involved in the cycle of pleasure and um, dopamine rushes. So at any stage when we fall in love, the first stage, our brains behave a little bit like an addict brain. For the teenage brain, it's just a little bit more intense. Because the teenage brain is not developed um, fully like the mature brain. And that is very important to understand. And that intensity that comes to the first relationship and puppy love can make it very difficult for teenagers to recognize and acknowledge abusive behavior from their partner. The fear of losing a relationship in the teenage years can play a huge role when we understand these dynamics. And then please can we remember that teenagers have a lack of experience and knowledge to recognize and address abusive behavior. They may not know what healthy relationships look like or what to expect. I think that is absolutely fascinating. And of course, we start to link in here this idea of teenagers being in a coercively controlled or abusive relationship. Again, we don't think about teenage relationships in this context. When we think about abusive relationships, we picture adults. But this abuse and the conditioning of victims starts somewhere. And often, Abusive people will repeat this pattern in all of their relationships, no matter how old they are. The biggest difference, as Almarie explains, 
is that in the teenage context, everything is so intense and there's a lot of inexperience and lack of understanding of what relationships should really be like. But I think it's only fair to Chanel to point out that she did recognize that her relationship with Zander was toxic. She had ended it with him. Her parents recognized this. Her friends, including Marna, did too. And so did Marna's parents. Honestly, everyone in the situation did everything they could to free Chanel from Zander's grasp. And they thought they'd succeeded. But sadly, it was not enough. It did take some time, though, for Chanel to recognize what was happening to her. And I think if it hadn't been for her supportive friends and parents, she may have struggled to continue to say no to Zander. And what is very clear is that although everyone understood that this relationship was not healthy, no one thought for even a second that it could be deadly. And this is something I really want to use this platform to get across. The base truth of this crime as an intimate partner murder. And if we can, to provide a little education to parents and teens on what to look out for. I asked Elmarie for some of her insights around what abuse and coercive control might look like in a teenage context and what signs we might be able to look out for both to identify victims and possible future abusers. But I think it's important to emphasize that when we look at signs of coercive control, we're also describing behavior that already existed. It's important to caution um, not to blame people when they found it difficult to identify behaviors. Because usually these kinds of behaviors start gradually. And when you're in something, it might be difficult to see what you are in. And especially then for teenagers who do not live together and only see each other during break time or uh, over weekends or afternoons, um, it might take on different forms. Like, for instance, I would say um, check if someone tries to use technology to control the partner. So monitoring a phone, social media, or email accounts um, to check what are you posting on Facebook or Instagram or what, and I am actually editing that for you. Or to pressure a partner to spend all their time with them. So an abuser may try to keep their partner from seeing other friends or participating in other activities or try to isolate them. And then I, I get back to the concept of making a partner feel guilty or responsible for their actions, not for the partner's actions, for, for the person, the abuser's action. So the abuser may shift the blame onto the partner for problems in the relationship or use emotional blackmail to get what they want. Even um, coaches by saying it's only because I care so much. And because I care so much, I can help you with this and that and the other. But what else? It could be controlling behavior because something that can be sugarcoated as love may not be love. It may be control. 
And then I think intimidation. You get overt intimidation and then covert intimidation. So to to actually spread rumors maybe or tell the uh, partner that you might hurt yourself if they leave you, that is all kinds of intimidation that we can look for. I think it's important to underline what Almarie says in the beginning there. Laying out these signs is not intended to shame any victim or their family or friends into feeling like they failed to see the signs. The very nature of coercive control is so insidious that it really fits well with the frogs in boiling water analogy. If you throw a frog into a pot of boiling water, it's going to jump straight out. But if you put that frog into a pot of cold water, and then slowly, incrementally increase the temperature, they may not even realize anything's changed until it's too late and they're boiling. Really, my reason for wanting to discuss these red flags is twofold. To illustrate how Zander's behavior matched up with what we see in abusive relationships, and also as a tool of education. Because if there's anything I've learned in my podcasting journey, it's that you never know who is listening and who needs to hear what you're saying. So how did Zander and Charnel's relationship illustrate coercive control and abuse? Well, in several ways, really. But again, it's easy to see this stuff in hindsight. The explosion of violence against Charnel that took her life was just the crescendo of incrementally increasing, controlling, intimidating and violent behavior from Sander. Charnel had mentioned several instances of controlling behavior to her friends, as well as to her new boyfriend, Brandon. Zander had tried to isolate her from her friends, especially Marna. He wanted the two to have as little contact as possible. In the hours preceding the murders, Brandon had witnessed Zander's obsessive behavior himself when the young man had phoned Charnel's phone continuously while Brandon happened to be there. Charnel had eventually answered and Zander had swiveled between anger at Charnel not having picked up and sweetness, begging her to have dinner with him. Even after Charnel's death, Zander still displayed the behaviours of a controlling partner by attempting to humiliate her memory by sending partially nude photographs of her from her phone to her father. A pretty significant event in Zander and Charnel's relationship occurred in September 2017, while they were still dating. It was Zander's matric farewell. His date was to be his beautiful girlfriend, Charnel. But while most teen couples might only see each other's outfits for the first time on the night of the event, Zander Belsma was having none of that. Although Charnel and her mother had already gone out and purchased a dress for the night, one that Charnel had chosen, Zander had other plans. He designed, and had his mother arranged to have made up, a dress of his choosing. He and his mother chose the jewellery Charnel would wear. Zander hadn't wanted Charnel to wear makeup, but Mercia had convinced him that it was the done thing for such events, and he'd eventually relented, 
and provided instructions on how much makeup his mother should apply to Charnel on the day. The young girl got ready at Mersh's apartment. The level of controls under displays here is intense. Mariska Kutzer weighs in with Mersh's take on this day and why they'd taken so much control over the planning. See, that's the irony is, you know, like when we reported on this story initially, that was the feeling of people, you know, like people even said that Zander went as far as picking out a dress and telling her what to wear, you know, and that type of thing. And the irony is when I spoke to his mother about it the one day, you know, the way she told it was in a completely different light. You know, she was, she said to me, for instance, that Mr. Zander um, invited her to go with, yeah, you know, he wanted to make it as comfortable and as nice as possible. So he didn't have to worry about getting a dress or this or that. I'm fully with Mariska here on the different perspectives. That's always important. And I have absolutely no doubt that for Mersha, it was an act of kindness and caring. But you'll have to go pretty far to convince me that there are very many teenage boys who would insert themselves into their girlfriend's dressing, makeup, and hair choices. And if he really was trying to help her avoid the trouble, he was too late, because she and her mom had already found a dress she liked and purchased it. And that dress would never be worn. The fact that so many people told this story to Marizga also says something to me. Chanel noticed. She noticed enough to express to others how strange she felt about it. And those people felt it was equally strange. People who knew Zander far better than us. But this would just be an addition to the list of controlling behavior Zander displayed. Because he would escalate. And his control would explode into violence and intimidation on several occasions. Among the reported incidents included two or more instances where Zander had been seen pushing Charnel, grabbing her arms and shoving her into a fence. When Mana had stepped in and told him to stay away from Charnel, he'd sent an expletive-filled text to her. When Mana's father intervened and told Zander never to address his daughter that way again, Zander had threatened to use a gun to settle the matter. Perhaps the most telling of all is that on the morning of Charnel and Mana's murder, as the news of their deaths spread among the community, several of their family members and friends immediately asked whether Zander was a suspect yet. His name was immediately on the lips of Stella's residence, precisely because of his behavior toward Charnel and Mana. Very few people were surprised when he was arrested, although they'd never dreamed he would take it that far. Although the murders of Charnel Ho and Mana Engelbrecht would initially be mired in controversy and suspicion, I think that through the trial, the ensuing years, and now this documentary, one thing has become quite clear. 
what once seemed a very complex crime with multiple possible motives, outcomes and suspects is really very simple in its nature. And although it may be interesting, informative and even educational to delve down into its minutiae as we've done here, what happened at 2am on the morning of the 26th of May 2018 can be broken down into very simple terms. A young man with significant emotional instabilities became enraged at a perceived slight from the woman he believed should have been his. He became equally enraged at her friend who had dared challenge him and stand in the way of what he wanted. And although he knew it was wrong, he chose to take the lives of those two young women and then attempted to cover it up as a suicide. Then he got himself so wrapped up in the attention that all his lies about his innocence earned him that he could not seem to arrive back at the truth. Chanel Ho and Marta Engelbrecht did absolutely nothing to deserve what happened to them. Their families have been torn apart in the wake of their vicious murders and their pain only continues to deepen with every day that passes. Some say that in a way it seemed fitting that Marna and Charnel died together. Both would have been completely devastated if one had lost their life and the other had survived. There are several photographs of Marna and Charnel together on their parents' farms. The pretty girls are in fields of flowers with broad smiles on their faces. And from having heard them laughing in the documentary, looking at those pictures, I can hear their laughter echo through the space in time. No one wants to make documentaries about two murdered schoolgirls. No one wants to make podcasts about them either. We don't want Marna and Chanel to have been the subject of any of this. We'd rather it never happened at all. But it did. And all we can do now is try and remember those two girls as they lived. And perhaps take some small nuggets of understanding for the future from their deaths. This is the final official episode of Stella Murders, the official companion podcast. Please do follow the show on Spotify or the platform you're listening on, as I may add some bonus content in the future. I'd like to thank Showmax for once again taking innovation to the next level in including another companion podcast with their Showmax original documentaries. If you found value in listening to this podcast after watching the documentary, please do share it with your friends and let Showmax know that you appreciate their extra efforts in honouring the memories of Charnel Ho and Mana Engelbrecht. If you'd like more detail on this case, you can head over to my other podcast, True Crime South Africa, where I'll be covering it in full in the next week. Thank you for listening, and I'll chat to you after the next Showmax original documentary.